Hi, Nat Doig here. You don't have to have listened to the last episode, The Black Magic Church, to enjoy this one, which is about the ghost stories associated with St Mary's Church at Clop Hill. It's often referred to locally as the Black Magic Church. However, the last episode did cover the history of the church and how it gained its notorious reputation for being a place where magical rites were performed and where the devil was summoned. So it's up to you whether you want to listen to that episode first. I'll still be here with the ghost stories when you've finished, or you can just dive right in now. Still here? Great. Get ready for some particularly chilling and strange ghost stories. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny, all that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade, or the pot and poisoner, curious social history, or the great swan mystery of 1935, we'll follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's December 1969. That time between Christmas and New Year, when no one knows what day it is. The sun stands still after the winter solstice, and the days are dark and cold. But festive lights twinkle, and there's still some quality street left in the tin. It's a cold and freezing morning, long before sunrise, as Laurence Steinmetz and his wife Augusta Lilly drive carefully through Klopp Hill. I suspect they knew what day it was, being news agents delivering the papers. It must have been like any other dark December morning, delivering to the lonely and isolated farms they couldn't expect a paperboy or girl to deliver to. They were on their way to Northfield Farm, which lies between the tiny village of Haynes and Clop Hill. To reach the farm, they needed to take Great Lane, which runs parallel to the steep, old church path. Great Lane has lovely views across to the ruin of St Mary's and is a route many would have taken in the past to get to the church, turning off on numerous footpaths and bridleways for the short journey across the field over to St Mary's. Lawrence was driving carefully due to the icy conditions, though it was a journey he'd made many times before. Great Lane is a typical English country road, Tall hedgerows and trees crowd on either side. In places, the lane snakes, but in others is quite straight. Pleasant on a warm summer's evening, but the dark trees and high hedges can be oppressive on a still winter's morning before dawn. As Lawrence kept his gaze on the road for patches of ice, his wife interrupted the stillness by asking, Look, Larry, ahead. Is that a light? Through the gloom, both saw a small, meagre light ahead of them. Lawrence wondered if it was a cyclist. Though, who in their right mind would be cycling on a freezing morning like this, he wondered. He slowed down and dipped his headlights nonetheless, in case there was some foolhardy individual riding a bike out there. But as they drove closer, it became clear 
the light was too high off the ground for a cyclist. Lily, I think it's a horse rider. And slowing even further, Lawrence and Lily's car approached the horse and rider. It was a large horse, dark and powerful looking. Though the rider was carrying a lantern, they were hard to make out because of the old-fashioned cloak and hood they were swathed in, making them almost as dark as the surrounding gloom. Like a monk, Lawrence thought. The lantern wasn't a modern torch either. It was like one of those lanterns you sometimes see outside pubs or posh houses. Proper old-fashioned, he thought. The horse and rider showed no sign of stopping, nor slowing, so Lawrence braked, bringing his car to a complete halt. Yet the horse and monk still rode on towards them. What must have been a matter of seconds felt like minutes. Lawrence and his wife froze as the horse pounded towards them, the hooded figure hunched, the lantern swaying from side to side, up and down, casting jagged splinters of light across the windscreen until the horse and rider were upon them. But instead of rearing up or swerving around the car at the last minute, the horse and rider passed right through the vehicle and through Lawrence and his wife as they sat there, stunned. Lawrence later reported that my wife and I were horrified. We didn't look behind. I just put my foot down and rushed off. It was a horrible experience. They didn't say a word to anyone for over a year. The incident had upset them so much. But in 1971, whilst delivering their newspapers on a more pleasant morning, a lady in the village asked them if they'd ever seen a cloaked and hooded rider on Great Lane whilst out delivering to Northfield Farm. Shocked, Lawrence confirmed that he had. The woman then explained that she and her family had once lived on Great Lane, but had moved after being so troubled by sightings of this horse and rider with its old-fashioned lantern and monk-like appearance. This emboldened Lawrence. He now realised that he and his wife were not alone in seeing this horrifying sight. And so when he was next at Northfield Farm, he asked the farmer if he had ever seen this monk-like rider as well. The farmer asked him to stay where he was and disappeared into one of his barns. He emerged carrying a battered old horn lantern, the sort that encloses a candle or wick within a metal and glass case with a loop on top for attaching to a stick or handle. Lawrence exclaimed that it was just like the one he had seen the rider carrying. The farmer nodded simply saying, This lantern's over 200 years old, maybe much older. So Lawrence decided to share his story with the Bedfordshire Times. The opinion locally was that the hooded figure was the ghost of a monk from nearby Chicksands Priory, making his way to the Priory via St Mary's Church. There were reports that this was a popular medieval pilgrimage route. Lawrence Steinmetz's revelations led to someone else coming forward, claiming that whilst they were near to Chicksands Wood, one night in their car, a cloaked and hooded figure passed through them and their vehicle in a similar shocking and impossible manner. Chicksands Wood is a curious place. Now, much of it is given over to mountain bike tracks, but as a child we would walk there often and my brother and his friend once reported seeing a monkey, not a monk, a monkey in the woods. And a monkey was on the loose at the time from a wildlife park, which we didn't find out about until after my brother's sighting. <laughs> Chicksands Priory is situated on the Chicksands Air Force Base and is very close to St Mary's Church, about three miles away across the fields as the crow flies or the pilgrims walked back in the day. So this ghostly monk and his spectral horse became associated with Clop Hill and Chicksons, and is the first ghost sighting to be linked to St Mary's Old Church. It's not the last horse nor monk-like figure to be connected with the church either. Over the next 50 years, ghostly encounters swirled around this ruined chapel on the hill, filling books, blogs, TikTok videos and news sites with more than just the tales of black magic and devil worship. 
Hello and welcome to this Christmas episode of Weird in the Wade, the ghosts of St Mary's Old Church. What could be more perfect than celebrating Yule or Christmas or any other midwinter festival than by sharing ghost stories connected with a church? A church that will have seen many Christmases come and go over the centuries and, if rumour is to be believed, was the site of pre-Christian worship too, perhaps a site visited to witness the winter solstice. Who knows? Ghost stories in midwinter make a lot of sense. The nights are long, the weather cold. It's a time of fireside stories as ideas spark in the shadows and our minds turn inward to darker places and times. Christmas was once a time where roles were reversed. Masters and mistresses served their servants. Misrule was celebrated for a short period of time. In this topsy-turvy celebration, the other world drew close to ours and the uncanny seemed more real, more possible. And often the world around us at this time of year is transformed by frost and ice or snow and fog or simply by the long, dark nights that we then transform again with sparkling lights and decorations. So, keeping with this tradition, I am going to tell you some ghost stories associated with St Mary's Old Church at Clop Hill. And there are so many stories about this church that it will take up a whole episode but I hope to release a bonus episode on New Year's Day about some other Bedfordshire churches which have ghosts attached. But first, a very brief reminder of what we know about St Mary's Old Church. It is at least 700 years old, built on a hill above the village of Clop Hill in Bedfordshire. St Mary's fell into disuse in the mid-19th century when a new church was built in the heart of the village. The graveyard continued to be used well into the 20th century, but was not very secure, with grave robbers being reported within a decade of its abandonment. By 1963, the church was in a ruinous state and became infamous overnight when reports of black magic rituals being performed in the church made headline news. Graves and the church itself were vandalised and desecrated. Over the coming decades, the church's reputation for vandalism, kids partying, magic rituals and devil worship grew. I was terrified by stories of the devil being summoned at St Mary's as a child. So it's not really surprising that ghost stories began to swirl around the site, shifting its reputation into something slightly different. The story I opened with of Mr and Mrs Steinmetz ghost sighting is one of the most widely reported ghost stories of Clop Hill. It appears in Betty Puttick's 1996 book Ghosts of Bedfordshire, then in Dick Dawson's 2004 work Scraunchings from Beneath the Dottle Tree, Life in Rural Bedfordshire, a hundred years ago. Damien O'Dell covers it around the same time in his book Paranormal Bedfordshire. There'll be more about Damien O'Dell later in the show. And finally, Kevin Gates covered the story in detail in his great book The Paranormal Diaries, The Black Magic Church, The True Story of Clop Hill. You'll find links to all of those books in the show notes on the blog. You'll find the tale of the spectral horse and monk on many blogs and ghost sighting websites too. It seems to be the first recorded ghost story which has a link to St Mary's Old Church. Interestingly, it occurred six years after the first report of grave desecration and rituals. Though it's important to stress that the link to St Mary's is not a direct one, Great Line, where the rider appeared, runs parallel to the old church path, but does not lead directly to the church. Now, I've searched for earlier ghost stories for Clop Hill and have not found anything that relates to St Mary's apart from one rumour. Kevin Gates spoke with a local man who believed that the rector of Clop Hill in the 1950s, not Reverend Barker, who was there during the vandalism and disturbances of the 60s, but a Reverend Grant, may have unwittingly lit the fire of notoriety 
for St Mary's Old Church, when in fact attempting to do the complete opposite. After lead was stolen from the church roof in the mid-50s, Reverend Grant was said to have put about a rumour that St Mary's was haunted. His hope was to deter kids and thieves from heading up to the site during the hours of darkness. But locals have speculated that it was these ghostly rumours that may have alerted nearby students, witches and occultists to the existence of the church. Now, there are many lonely hilltop churches across the country and some have suffered at the hands of vandals and others have attracted those wishing to perform rituals. I think St Mary's is particularly inviting for this kind of thing because it is only a short walk from the main road and bus stops until fairly recently you could also drive up the hill to the church. Yet once you are there, it feels utterly isolated. This combination of easy access but secluded abandonment was bound to attract those interested in such places. Though if rumours of hauntings at St Mary's were circulating in the 1950s and early 60s, it could only have helped fix the church's reputation in local people's minds. What we do know for sure is that once the church had a reputation for black magic, rituals and wildness, the ghost stories followed. Photography, a risky pursuit at Clop Hill. UK decay. It's 1979 and the Luton-based punk band UK Decay have found the perfect spot for the cover photograph of their latest EP. Being based locally in Luton, they'd heard rumours about the old abandoned church on top of the hill just up the A6. They knew of its ruinous state and the tales of rituals and ghostliness. It was perfect, especially as the lead single on the EP, Black Cat, is a song about terrible crimes and witches in disguise. The band travel up to the church together, all packed into one car. The photographs taken are moody, in black and white, with the band members standing together nonchalantly in one of the open arches into the church another darker arch, shadowy, behind them. The lead singer, Steve Abbott, known as Abbo, is crouched down, his head surrounded by a halo of wavy hair. It's a perfect EP cover for a band described by NME as the cult before the cult. The atmosphere is fairly typical for a photo shoot until the final photo is taken. Then suddenly like a shadow rushing across a clear sky, the mood plummets. Dread descends on them, like icy fingers tip-tapping down their spines. There's no time to think. Each band member just knows. They've got to get out of there. No need for discussion. They just rush to the car, as if the hounds of hell are on their heels. Just drive! So they do, down the narrow, windy track, until there, out of nowhere in front of them, they see it break slam to avoid hitting a glimmering white horse. Their heightened fear makes the sight of this beast appear even more ethereal. Hairs prickling on their arms, goose flesh spreading. Then one of them snaps out of the spell, saying, It's just an escaped horse, mate. And with that, the horse turns on its tail and trots down the track away from them around a bend. So on they drive, taking the bend on to a long straight part of the road. But where they should see a horse, there's nothing. Yet the thick tree and hedge-lined track are impossible for a horse to get through or to leap over. And even if it did, they were so close behind it they'd have seen some trace of the horse, but there is nothing, just empty dirt road, no hoof prints, nothing. It is said that after this incident, the band believed that their luck changed, and not for the better. Some in the band felt they were cursed after their photo shoot at Clop Hill's Black Magic Church, and that 
It took years for this stain of misfortune to finally be rubbed away. I'm struck by the fact that this is a mysterious horse encounter, although a riderless one this time. A write-up of this incident on a UK decay forum says that the villages of Mid-Bedfordshire have a particular folklore relating to horses, including flying horses. In fact, one of the pubs in Clop Hill is called the Flying Horse. I've tried to find any folklore relating to Bedfordshire horses, but have only found one thing so far, and that's that at the small village of Toddington, just a few miles southwest of Clop Hill, is famous for producing the world's tallest and heaviest horse. This was back in 1846, and Samson, or Mammoth as he was renamed, still holds the Guinness World Record for height and weight of any horse. At his heaviest, he weighed 1,500 kilograms or 3,300 pounds and was over 21 hands high, which is about 7 feet 2 inches. There is a supposed photo of him, but it's disputed whether it's actually a photo of Mammoth as it looks a little too modern. I'll link to it on the blog. I'll also share some of the links to UK Decay's community page, which is a treasure trove of punk and post-punk music memories from the Bedfordshire area and, of course, UK Decay themselves. Whatever happened that day on Clop Hill at the photo shoot, it's a legendary band story. Paranormal Power Couples and Sophie's Ghost the link with photography is a little tenuous in the UK decay story. It was just a photo shoot after all. The next photography related stories both include husband and wife, paranormal investigators and photographic evidence. Kevin Gates in his book On the Black Magic Church reports that on a cold winter's day in early 1972, Janet Board and her husband Colin visited St Mary's to take photographs and experience the infamous sight. As is expressed by many who visited St Mary's Church, Janet felt extremely uncomfortable as soon as she arrived and her discomfort did not subside for the whole time she was there. The couple were used to visiting places associated with the paranormal, but Janet told Gates that she can still remember that horrendous atmosphere at the church, of its supernatural presence, which she attributes to the black magic rituals which were still taking place at the time in 1972. The couple did not stay long, and after snapping a few shots, they rushed back to the safety of their car, when Colin later developed the photographs from the day, he found a mark on one of the negatives that neither of them could identify. The implication is that they had somehow photographed the source of malevolence that Janet had sensed. But it would be a few years later in the decade that a claim of actual photographic evidence of a ghost at St Mary's would be put forward for the world to judge. In 1977, paranormal investigator Tony Bruffle told the world about his visit to St Mary's Old Church with his wife Georgina back in November 1972. He took lots of photographs in black and white as he wandered the site, some of them including Georgina smiling in front of the church. The Bruffles, like the boards, were seasoned paranormal investigators at home in places that others considered frightening or unsettling. They had the whole place to themselves, so they made the most of it. They weren't expecting anything unusual to show up in the photos, as they'd been alone and they hadn't seen anything uncanny or concerning. Yet Tony was convinced that something anomalous had shown up in just one of the photos that he had taken. The picture is of Georgina smiling in front of the church with a view into the interior through the huge south-facing window behind her. It's what's inside the church that caught Tony's interest. He and others swear they can make out a white figure inside the chapel. The figure has been described as either wearing a long white gown or possibly a clergyman's surplice. 
Another layer of strangeness to the photo is that to view the figure through the window at that angle, Bruffle worked out that it must have been floating around six feet off the floor inside the church. The apparition was given the name Sophie's Ghost. Now how the ghost got her name is one of those stories that just couldn't happen today, but back in the early 70s seems to have just been normal. A local school teacher called Roger decided to carry out an archaeological dig at the church with some of his students. This was apparently against the wishes of the local archaeological society, but Roger just went ahead anyway. As part of this project, some of the kids interviewed villagers about their memories of the church and village life. One old boy told the tale of St Mary's Church being haunted by the ghost of a woman named Sophie. Now, Kevin Gates speculates that this might be the story put about in the 1950s by Reverend Grant to keep kids away. Or it could be some other ghost story associated with the site that's just been lost to time. What nailed the name in place was what the school archaeological dig uncovered. As well as finding a cross wrapped in reeds and some animal bones, which many were certain were linked to the black magic rituals, in the northeast end of the church, a number of skeletons were uncovered, and amongst them, a coffin plate, simply stating, Sophia Mendham, born 6th of February 1806, died 21st of May 1893. Sophia was the wife of John Mendham, the rector of Clop Hill, from 1844 to his death in 1869. He and his wife oversaw the building of the new St Mary's Church down in the village, but would have used the old church for at least the first five years of their time at Clop Hill. After her husband's death, Sophia, who was a Yorkshirewoman from Hull, moved down to the south coast, to St Leonard's-on-Sea, right next to Hastings. Here, she paid for the building of a new church known as Emmanuel Church on West Hill, Hastings. The church hall still bears her name to this day. The building of the church cost £4,500, a vast sum of money at the time. Local guides to Hastings in the late 19th century comment on how Sophia Mendham was the sole funder for the building. And when Sophia died, she left a fortune of £26,481, 17 shillings, and 10 old pence. But she was buried in Clophill Church, alongside her husband, I assume. But remaining in Hastings for a moment, another character, loosely tied to our story, also retired there for the last years of his life. None other than Alistair Crowley, the man who popularised the idea of black magic rituals in the first half of the 20th century. There's even an urban legend that he cursed Hastings so that anyone who has ever lived there cannot leave unless they have a piece of Hastings Castle in their possession or a hagstone, a pebble with a natural hole worn through it by the sea from the beach. I've never lived in Hastings, but a good friend of mine did and she made sure she had both, I believe, before leaving. But I digress. Back to 1972 and Roger with his students carrying out the dig at the church. Just the name Sophia being on the coffin plate is enough to ignite the imagination of those involved and Tony Braffle. It was seen as too much of a coincidence. There must be a ghost named Sophie or Sophia in the church. And now we know that Sophia was a generous, God-fearing woman involved in the building of at least two new churches. I mean, who can put that to their name? If anyone was going to find it hard to rest in a chapel defiled and desecrated by vandals, it was surely Sophia. And so the legend of Sophie's ghost was born. Since Tony Bruffle published his findings about Clop Hill Church in 1977, others have claimed to have seen 
a shining white figure in or around the church, something not dissimilar to what was captured in the photograph. Now, I've not seen the photograph. My description of it is based on Kevin Gates's book and others who have written about it. Gates does, in the end, dismiss the photo in a very polite and thorough way. He puts it down to pareidolia, which is that nifty knack humans have of seeing faces in abstract patterns, looking for faces in clouds or tree bark or figures in shadows. We're really good at it. I'll share some good examples on the blog, which is weirdinthewade.blog. It seems that some at least think that the floating white apparition is just a trick of the light. But on the floating aspect, one thing to consider is that if this isn't a trick of the light, it's that both the height of the floor inside the church and outside of it has substantially changed since the 1970s. For one, the churchyard was levelled and also in some areas built up. The gravestones were moved to form a protective ring around the churchyard wall. This was done to put an end once and for all to the grave desecration. The inside of the church is now grass and a gravel path, which must be substantially higher than it was before. The south window, once described as high off the ground, is now just a few feet off it. And from the outside, you can sit in that window easily, as it's so low to the ground there. This is very different to how the grounds were before, back in 1972. And my point is that if a figure glimpsed through the window that appeared to be impossibly high off the ground, that same figure viewed today would just be walking normally. Now, I don't know what's more outlandish. The idea of spirits or the dead returning, demons or entities being summoned, or time slips showing a glimpse of how things were, or how they will be in the future. But it's an interesting thought that compared to the 1970s, when you walk around St Mary's Church today, you're walking on ground elevated from where it was a few decades ago. But that's not the end of the ghostly happenings related to photographs, because sometimes the most frightening things are what we can't see, or something that should be visible, but isn't. The Photographer and the Motorcyclist I must thank Damien O'Dell for giving me permission to cover this story as you'll find it exclusively in his Paranormal Bedfordshire book which he still has copies of and offers free postage and packaging for. I'll post a link in the show notes on the blog and also in the show description for you. I can definitely recommend the book as it has loads of brilliant stories in it. Damien is also the founder of Anglian Paranormal Investigation Society and has a wealth of experience in the field. Our story is one told to Damien personally. It happened to a photography student, Lynette, who was taking photos of the ruins for her portfolio. It was a warm summer's day in 1996. Whilst she was engrossed in her task, she suddenly noticed a young man in motorcycle leathers standing to her side. Now, I'm a photographer and I'm used to people politely waiting just behind me or to my side when I'm photographing, and sometimes it can be a little unnerving. But Lynette found this particularly peculiar because she'd not heard this young man approach, nor the sound of a motorcycle nearby. The motorcyclist chatted with her, asking what she was doing. He went on to explain that some of his relatives were buried in the churchyard, even pointing out their graves to her. The whole time they spoke, Lynette marvelled at how warm this young man must be in his full leathers on such a hot day. Eventually, Lynette politely extricated herself from the conversation, explaining that she needed to get on with her task, something I also have had to do on many photography outings. We think of the British public as being reserved, but have a camera in your hand somewhere quiet and you'll be surprised who will approach you to have a chat. After taking a few more shots, Lynette turned to see where the motorcyclist had got to, only to not see him anywhere. 
But her bafflement soon slipped into annoyance when she realised that he'd left his crash helmet in one of the arched windows and so it was sure to be visible in at least some of her photographs. Not being able to locate the young man, she headed home. On developing her photographs, she peered at them, waiting to find the ones where the crash helmet would appear. But to her surprise, none of the photographs included the crash helmet, yet she knew it had been in shot of the photos that she had taken at the end of her trip there. It was only when, a little while later, that she spoke to some friends about her strange encounter at St Mary's, that she was told that others had also encountered this motorcyclist in the churchyard. He would materialise out of nowhere and disappear just as swiftly. Never the sound of a motorbike engine, never a sign of where he came from or how he left. It was believed that he was the spirit of a young man who had lost his life in a motorcycle accident quite some time ago. I find this story particularly compelling and unnerving for a number of reasons. Unnerving because my dad has always ridden motorbikes and I've often been pillion with him. I grew up around other motorcyclists and bikers and if you have friends in these circles, you are bound to know someone who has or you yourself will have lost a relative or friend through accidents. Often the casualties are young men and it is utterly heartbreaking. I find the story compelling because Lynette does not report being scared or unnerved by the encounter whilst it's happening after that initial surprise at someone sneaking up on her. If anything, I can imagine that she was just mildly irritated by having her photo shoot interrupted by someone wanting to make small talk and then leaving his stuff in shot. Of course, it could just have been an actual friendly motorcyclist and she may have been mistaken about the position of the helmet, but it's not the kind of thing photographers tend to get wrong. If you know something was in shot that you didn't want to be there, it's usually because that thing was in shot. It's a sad but fascinating ghost story nonetheless. Filming the impossible. The next photography-related stories are far more recent. First up is a story reported widely in the UK media in 2016, with headlines like, Does this video show a hooded monk ghost creeping around a church? You can see why it caused a bit of a stir. Two paranormal investigators, Dean Johnson and Charlie Spaulding, were visiting the church which by 2016 was now in the care of a local charity who have transformed the site into a heritage, wildlife and ecological haven. But I'll explain more about the church today at the end of the show. They'd had a good explore and as they were leaving, decided to film one last video of the church. It was in this video, which is linked to on the show blog, weirdinthewade.blog, that whilst panning around from the site notice boards towards the church and sweeping across the south side slowly, they captured what looks like a hooded figure in a black cloak move across the doorway from inside the church. They ran back towards the church as any dedicated paranormal investigators would, only to find it empty including the bell tower, which was firmly locked. They were at a loss as to what it could be, and so went to the press with the story. Here's a great quote from Dean about his thoughts on it. I'm not sure if I believe in ghosts, but I certainly believe in the multiverse where people can cross over into our time from different dimensions. It seems Dean favours a time slip or parallel universe intrusion explanation for the sighting. He does go on to remind the journalists of St Mary's devil worship past, which is a great excuse for the newspapers to dig up the history to pad out their articles. The video is interesting and it really does look like a monk walking across the doorway, but the camera is moving throughout and I wonder if it is a shadow, though I can't quite work out what is casting it. 
and with our dear friend Paridolia, are we just making a random shadow appear like a monk? Have a look and let me know what you think. Our next story relates to filming at the church and appears on the Bedfordshire Live website in August 2021. It's a story about some strange goings-on whilst a good friend of Damien O'Dell's, yes, he of Paranormal Bedfordshire fame and founder of Anglian Paranormal Investigation Society, was filming at St Mary's Church. Damien's friend and an actor were standing together during filming when they saw a dark shape, much bigger than a human, come racing towards them. Damien is quoted by Bedfordshire Live as saying, They both ran, and something shoved the actress, who fell into him, Damien's friend. She was terrified. He then felt something grab his arm, but couldn't see anything there. It was not a prank, and no one else was at the site because it was sealed off for filming with a police officer guarding the path up. In fact, Damien goes on to explain. When they explained what had happened, instead of laughing at them, the copper said he had spent a lot of time guarding the abandoned site and many people experienced similar things. The police officer wasn't wrong. When you look at reports either in books, blogs or social media, what tends to be reported about St Mary's is the following. A feeling of dread, menace or hostility in the area of the church or graveyard is experienced. Shadows, including huge shadow figures or shining white vapours or mists are seen and glimpses of shadowy monks or hooded figures are reported. Damien O'Dell tells Bedfordshire Live that something might have been left behind by the occultists or devil worshippers in the past as they attempted to conjure spirits, demons or the devil. Which seems to be a popular belief with those who visit the site Another is that the paranormal activity is down to the desecration that disturbed those who should have been allowed to rest in peace. But very few who visit St Mary's Old Church in the last 50 years will have been unaware of its past, which means from a scientific point of view, most who visit have been primed. By which I mean that if you know a site has a reputation for ghostliness or occult practices, it's hard for us humans to enter that site without preconceptions. If you believe in the supernatural, you may walk up that hill to the church in trepidation, stealing yourself for an uncanny encounter. A Christian may be uncomfortable approaching the church because they believe that the devil has been summoned there, or at the very least that the sanctity of the church and those buried within have been defiled. Even a sceptic cannot approach the church without an idea about what might have caused others to attribute the paranormal to the building. We all take our baggage with us to St Mary's, rattling behind us as a ragtag tangle of beliefs, fears or assumptions. This makes it really difficult to objectively experience the church today. But before I tell you about my visit to St Mary's this year, there are a few other unusual aspects to the site that I need to tell you about. Not just ghosts. The Death Stone. Local kids have long used a visit to St Mary's Old Church as a rite of passage. A visit in the dark on a dare was popular when I was growing up a few miles away in Henlow. Many first dates for local kids would include a walk up to the church in daylight so that holding of hands and arms around each other for comfort would be needed. But one local tradition is that one of the gravestones and I'm not sure which, in the churchyard is known as the Death Stone and it holds magical powers. If you stare at the Death Stone for long enough, 
it will reveal the date of your death. Or, some claim, it will cause you to levitate off the ground. I remember these stories being told when I was growing up, along with the next one, which is, if you run around the church anti-clockwise 13 times, you will summon the devil. It's a similar idea to an older story from Mepishaw and a character called Old Jiggler, which I'll cover in a future episode of the podcast. Now, both of these stories are popular across the country and many graveyards will have the equivalent of a death stone or a door that you stare at. And similarly, with the running around a building or a monument 13 times summoning the devil or Bloody Mary or Old Jiggler. So I will definitely come back to Old Jiggler and similar stories in a future episode. Chicksands. I've mentioned Chicksands a few times in relation to Clophill Old Church. It's nearby and is the site of an old priory. More recently, it was a secretive American airbase and currently it's still a secretive military base. Chicksands has also cropped up in other weird in the Wade stories, most notably in relation to UFOs. And it's UFOs again, which feature today. Kevin Gates reports a few sightings of UFOs originating from the area of the church, but firmly linked to Chicksands, where one encounter was observed by a resident of the airbase. And of course, one of the prevailing theories about ghostly monks spotted at St Mary's is that they were on their way to and from Chicksands Priory. The priory itself has a very macabre ghost story associated with it, which I will cover in a future episode. There are even reports that military servicemen were behind some of the rituals carried out at the church, bringing US frat club style hazing ceremonies to Clop Hill. Big cat sightings. I am also delighted to tell you that there are at least two big cat sightings reported on Old Church Path leading its way up to St Mary's. One big cat fits the description of the black panther-like creature seen in not so far away Silso, which we covered in the bonus episode in November. Another big cat sighting was a more unusual one. This was made by a former curator and vet from Whipsnade Zoo who saw a large cat the size of a cocker spaniel and of a silvery brown mottled colour in the area of St Mary's Church. He claims to have a photo of it but doesn't seem to have shared it with anyone. St Mary's Old Church today. As mentioned in the previous episode, there were calls for the demolition of St Mary's in the 1990s. Thankfully, that did not happen. But during the 2000s, there was debate at council level about what to do with the site. One suggestion was to turn it into a bothy and encourage walkers on the Green Sand Way and other nearby walking routes to overnight there. If you listen to the podcast Uncanny, you'll understand why this idea fills me with both delight and horror. We could have had our very own Bedfordshire Louis Belt. I'll link to the Uncanny episode about Louis Belt on the blog, but it's an isolated Scottish bothy that has terrified many who have stayed the night there and haunted one particular man for most of his life. But sadly... The option was rejected as too expensive, so we can't sleep at St Mary's after all. Would you have been brave enough? I would. I would definitely have slept overnight at St Mary's if I could. Instead, a heritage and eco-charity was set up to manage the site. The church was made safe, including the tower, which you can now book to climb up. Wild flowers were planted, information boards erected and a set of eco-lodges built nearby. 
for hire for overnight stays or for sort of business team building trips. In a project that proved controversial, some of the tombstones which had been moved years before in a bid to make the site safe were now embedded in the ground flat to make a path which intermingles with stone slabs with poems written by schoolchildren about the church carved into them. In 2018, when the path was unveiled, local Facebook groups were filled with angry locals and the story made it into the national media, where headline writers reveled in calling the decision a grave error. The managers of the site argued that the gravestones had already been moved years ago and that by placing some of them in the path it was educational and a way to bring the history of the church to life for visitors. Personally, I found the path very moving. Reading the children's poems and the gravestones was a poignant juxtaposition of life and death. And so to my visit earlier this year in May, I went with my mum and dad and their trusty dog, Bella, who I refer to when on podcast business as the pod dog. You can see photos of her on the podcast Insta account. It was a stunningly beautiful day in mid-May. Church bells and birdsong greeted us as we arrived at Clop Hill. I was struck by just how steep the hill up to the church is and what a faff it would have been to traipse up there every Sunday for the inhabitants of Clop Hill. No wonder they wanted a new church. I was nervous about visiting. The church had hovered in my nightmares as a child. The stories I'd heard about it as a nine and ten year old were lurid and thrilling. But I think it would have been impossible to be spooked on such a beautiful day. The earth was just bursting with life. There was blossom and wildflowers and the sound of bees and other insects was immense. I've not heard buzzing like it in years. Here's a recording I made at the time. It's before I had the lav mic, so the quality isn't the best. It's a beautiful view from the top of the hill up here. The church is really peaceful. Um, it's really beautiful. You can book to come and climb the tower, but you have to give them notice. Um, and then they will come and let you climb the tower and the views from the top of there must be absolutely stunning. So yeah, it's a really beautiful setting really peaceful. Lots of dog walkers up here, so not lonely, but just really peaceful. Um, beautiful bird song. Beautiful wildflowers because it's May, so the May blossom is out and there's kale parsley and daisies and buttercups and wild garlic. So it is beautiful and I definitely recommend a visit. It definitely did have a peaceful and tranquil atmosphere, but there was something else beneath it. A sadness, maybe. A sense of weariness, almost. My dad did describe it as being spooky. And my mum said it was lovely and peaceful, but conceded the atmosphere would be very different at night or on a dark winter's day. So, as we come to the close of this episode, I will be visiting St Mary's Old Church in the depth of winter. If you are listening on the day of release... I may even be there right now, walking under skeletal trees, peering through those arches, treading on the tombstones. If you check out the podcast social media, you'll hopefully see updates from my visit and all going well. In the next bonus episode of Weird in the Wade, I'll tell you about my time there and share some other ghostly stories associated with Bedfordshire churches. I'm hoping to get that episode out to you as a New Year's treat on New Year's Day. Hey, don't rush off just yet. I have some exciting news about the band UK Decay, the ones who saw the mysterious white horse after their photo shoot at St Mary's Old Church. Last night, Saturday the 16th of December, I got a message from Steve Spon, the lead guitarist from the band. I'd reached out to see if they'd be happy to share their account first hand with me. I'm hoping 
time allowing, that early next year I will get to speak with Steve about what happened at Clop Hill. Steve said that it was an event that has stayed with him. It clearly had a profound effect on him and all those involved. I'd like to thank Steve for getting in touch, especially at such a busy time of the year. Fingers crossed I'll be able to have a chat with him early next year. And in some other exciting news, I will be chatting with Rick Palmer on his wonderful podcast, Some Other Sphere. Due out on Wednesday, the 20th of December, we talk all things weird in the Wade, paranormal, historical, and why Christmas is a time for ghost stories. Some Other Sphere is a great show. Each episode, Rick interviews someone from the world of folklore, the paranormal, magic, or the occult. He's had some brilliant guests like Evelyn Hollow, Fred Anderson, Alyssa and Bethan from Eerie Essex, Emma Hurd of Weird Wiltshire fame, and even the legend that is Lionel Fanthorpe. I was extremely honoured to be asked onto Rick's show. I've posted a link in the show description as well as the show blog to some other sphere so please do give it a listen and explore the back catalogue of fantastic episodes. Also don't forget to check out the photos, links to further reading and information on the Weird and the Wade blog which has the easy address to remember of weirdinthewade.blog. I'll be posting new photos of St Mary's on the blog in the next couple of days. As we draw to the end of 2023, I've been reflecting on the year and marvelling at how if I'd been told this time last year that I'd be ending 2023 with a growing podcast about weird and strange local history, I'd have been thrilled and a little daunted. Since Uncanny Con back in March, 2023 has been a weird but wonderful ride and I couldn't have done it without you fabulous listeners. When the Haunted Pound Stretcher episode came out in May, I thought I might make three or four other episodes. But obviously I've made more than that and I will keep making episodes about the peculiar and the paranormal in Biggleswade, Bedfordshire and beyond. It has meant so much to me to hear listeners' feedback about the show. You've told me that Weird in the Wade has been a bright spot in a dark year, has made some of you feel less lonely and welcomed and introduced others to the area of Biggleswade and Bedfordshire. Other listeners have just told me that they've enjoyed being scared or appreciated the sound effects, the research or the storytelling. All your feedback really means a lot to me. It's humbling. And well, I'm just chuffed that you're enjoying the stories that I'm telling. By making the podcast, I have also made a whole host of new friends around Biggleswade and further afield on social media and across the world from the US to Australia and everywhere in between. It's a bit mind-blowing. So I just wanted to say a really huge thank you to all of you who have listened this year, all of you listening now, everyone who's been in touch, shared your stories, made suggestions, supported the podcast by buying the show a coffee on ko-fi.com, by telling your friends and family about the show and by just simply tuning in for each episode. Thank you so, so much. It means the world to me. It really does. And I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year. But I do want to say some special thank yous. First of all, to Tess for her continued support, her brilliant musical compositions and for being an all-round brilliant friend. I'd also like to say thank you to Paul Jameson for being my first actual guest on the show, sharing his experiences in Potton Wood and just supporting the show just tirelessly. Thank you, Paul. And I also have a big Diokenvar, sorry for the pronunciation, <laughs> to Owen Staten for his support, for sharing his stories with me and for inviting me onto his wonderful podcast. I'd also like to thank Penny and Alan for sharing their stories about big cats with us. And to Liz for supporting this month on Kofi. It really means a lot to me. Thank you, Liz. 
And I couldn't end this list of thank yous without giving a huge shout out to Uncanny, to Danny Robbins and everyone on the Uncanny team. Without Uncanny Con earlier this year, there'd be no weird in the Wade. And the whole Uncanny community has been so welcoming and supportive of me and the show. Thank you. And remember, stay spooky. Weird in the Wade is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Theme music is by Tess Savagir. All additional music and sound effects by Epidemic Sound.